What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Unrestricted. I'm your host, Ben Lieber. I hope everybody's doing really, really well. All right, quick disclaimer. Uh, this podcast is going to sound a little bit a little bit differently this week because, well, I had to record all of this in my basement as I was quarantined with the coronavirus. Everything's good. I'm all good. But I was relegated to my basement without my podcasting equipment that was in a different location and I could not go out and get it. Thus, I did everything off of my laptop with no equipment. And uh, and obviously, I sound pretty congested. I'm still a little congested, even though I feel fine. So I sound ridiculous. Uh, the audio may not be the best in what you're used to. So for that, I apologize. But nonetheless, I think I have a great guest this week. My guest this week is a Minnesota-born professional comedian. His name is Cy Amundsen. He's been on pretty much everywhere on the national stage. He's been on Comedy Central, where he did a 30-minute show. He's been on Family Guy, American Dad. He used to host the Sports Center on Snapchat with Katie Nolan. And uh, he's been on Conan O'Brien, Adam Devine's House Party. He's a mainstay at the Acme Comedy Club here in Minneapolis. And he also contributes a lot with the Minnesota Vikings and KFA and Radio here in town, talking about all things Minnesota sports. And he also has two podcasts of his own, The Cy Amundsen Show and Middle of Somewhere with Chad Daniels. Uh, very, very funny shows, a lot of it very sports-centric as well. And that's kind of what we talk a little bit about. He is a diehard Vikings fan, so he has some strong opinions there. And I think that you guys are going to be pleasantly surprised. He, very, he, he really opens up about his personal life and just some things that he's been dealing with. He's, he, he's had to come off the road from the, from the comedy side of things for a little while because he's dealing with uh, some autoimmune issues, which he does open up about. And he's very open and honest about his his obsessive compulsive disorder I almost called it a, a mental illness I don't know if you can or you can't but uh, uh, he does talk about his his OCD and how much it's influenced his life and actually influenced his professional career and I think that you guys will find all of those re- revelations very um, sobering and honest and I think you'll appreciate how raw he is with all of that and I think he does it all with the hopes of just letting people know that Hey, even if you have some challenges in your life, uh, you can still overcome them. And for that, uh, I think you guys are going to really appreciate his approach to life and all the advice that he has to offer. And his story is just fantastic and size one of the best. So here he is, everyone. Cy Amundsen on Unrestricted. Hi, Sai. What's happening, buddy? Hey, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm so good. And I love to give people sort of the behind the scenes with a lot of this stuff. And I like sure. to be transparent, right? We use that word transparency all the time. You and I have been trying to, I've been trying to get this scheduled with you and vice versa for what? Nine months? Ten months? Since, uh, yeah, since almost the beginning. And I have done a very bad you would think making one hour of time available for somebody I care about would be an easy thing to do but apparently I'm just a giant piece of shit but now we've uh we've made it happen I'm excited I'm excited to join the the unrestricted family yeah thank you you know it's a good it's a good name the podcast is but it's one of those names that could go either way because 
it works because your conversations are kind of interesting. You're like, oh, let's hear what Brett Favre thinks about this. Or let's, you know, it's unrestricted in the sense that, you know, you're getting some more free flowing conversations from some of your friends. Like, oh, I didn't think Jared Allen would say that. But it also could have gone the other it could have been real chody like this is the unrestricted pod where you're gonna hear former football players swear like sometimes people it's like anytime you see a stand-up special that's called like unfiltered you're like well this is gonna suck horrifically but you've you've walked the line man i like that it, i like the unrestricted aspect well, I do appreciate that. And yes, I was not going to take the, the metal death approach to this whole thing. This was not going to be monster jam of podcasts. So, um, so um, I, I did not You'll never believe that. what former offensive lineman Corbin Lacina said. Uh, was that his name? Was it Corbin Lacina? I think so. Yeah. Did I, we think, have I a think Corbin you got Lucina it. on the team. Yeah. I love, I love the bikes. Um, so yeah, I, I did not want to set the precedence that, um, this was going to be, oh, just completely unabashed. This is going to be unfiltered, <laughs> unrestricted. Everybody's going to pour their souls out to me. Uh, it was more just a play on play on the whole you know, sports contract situation where you're unrestricted, you're free, and all that other stuff. So uh, thank you. Thank you. I, I, did, I did put a little bit of thought into kind of tight roping the title. Oh, you nailed it, friend. You really nailed it. Uh, so let's do that. Let's do the quick intro to sure. who you are. Uh, I think okay. first and foremost, and I think uh, obviously you've been told this before, you are a professional comedian and you are a comedic storyteller. It seems like that is sort of your, your vibe, your genre. Um, yes, sir. Lieber. Hey, yeah. you just got to right after you say who you are, you got to pick it up from there. Okay. Other than that, everything's going great and had for our whole other conversation. So sounds good. All right, so let's get into who you are. I'm sure everybody listening already knows who you are because you contribute so much to, to the Twin Cities area and you're known around the country as a, as a professional comedian. I'd like to say you're a comedic storyteller, which I'm sure you've heard that before. You've been a mainstay at Acme Comedy Club in Minneapolis. You've been on Conan and Adam Devine's House Party. You've been on Comedy Central. You had your special on Comedy Central. And then you've also uh, hosted Sports Center on uh, with Snapchat. Is that how you say it? Um, that, I think that's how that the had, kids are saying it. Yeah, that's how the kids are saying it. Um, you hosted that with Katie Nolan. Um, and I think the most important thing is you survived a household with nine kids. <laughs> yeah, I have. Uh, that's uh, I don't even know where to start. But yeah, I, uh, I have a crazy family and I've had a weird career. And uh, yeah, dude, I'm, I was lucky. I've, I was really lucky for the second part of my career because Minneapolis is such a an incredible town and it's kind of played into every aspect of my career when I had the very stupid idea to start trying stand-up comedy it just so happens that one of the best if not the best comedy clubs in the entire country exists in Minneapolis in, in Acme Comedy Company I mean it's their open mic have you ever been to the open mic there Ben? I've never been to the open mic so for anyone who's never been to an open mic or doesn't know someone who's a comic, that's basically practice. That's where you get better. You go try your jokes. And generally in, in stand-up comedy and in the stand-up world, 
those are the worst shows in the world. Like you're lucky if you get 16 people who aren't interested to come out. And Lewis Lee, the owner of Acme, tied it to kind of like the young college age kids and turned it into this hip event on Monday nights and he made it free. And so Acme, which seats 270, 280, 290, regularly would sell out on Monday nights for the open mic. So I, once I, you know, started doing open mic and got noticed and then got hired there and became a regular, I got to learn how to do comedy and test new jokes in front of like 270 people almost every single time. So I was lucky to get this like crazy advantage. And that, that also like Minneapolis is a really smart town it's an educated town it's a nuanced town where if you go to toledo ohio they're like tell us about your dick and your farts but in minneapolis you can kind of be exactly who you are and do exactly what you think is funny and either that great crowd will reward you or not and it's it's just a really really lucky place to kind of grow up in comedy wise and then after moving to LA and then doing all the sports stuff, I was lucky enough to fall in with a lot of you guys at the fan. And, you know, it's one of the top sports stations in the country and to kind of learn how to be funny in the sports world through, through that place was just another huge advantage. So. Yeah. Well, the other thing is uh, to go along with your introduction, you do do work on the fan in Minneapolis, uh, KFA and radio, and also with the Minnesota Vikings at Vikings Entertainment Network. And then you also, as if you don't have enough things going on, especially during the football season, you have two podcasts. I don't know how, the, how, you, how you have the time for two podcasts, which is probably why it's taken us so long to sit down um, and for you and I to chat, even, even, though, even though you and I probably talk once a week on the phone. And we yeah, text, the fact more often yeah, the, than, than people think the fact that we're still friends the fact that you you have put up with me for what ha feels like four or five because when i so when i was out in la uh my career was just kind of starting to take off comedy wise because you it's that like overnight success story takes however many years, like you fail and you fail and you fail. And there, there were all these things that I thought would be my big break in comedy where I got into the Montreal Comedy Festival and then I got on Conan and then we sold a TV show to MTV that failed miserably as a pilot. But when we sold it, I was like, well, look who's going to be fucking famous. Like I thought for sure. Well, right? why wouldn't you think that, right? I would think the same thing. Well, and I have a really good friend who told me once, he's like, when you accomplish something, even if it's not the top of the mountain, entertainment is such a hard industry. You need to celebrate each rung on the ladder a little bit. Otherwise, you'll be miserable all the time. And so, you know, it was all these things like trying, trying to get through. And then finally, the year that things really started turning a direction, I got the Comedy Central half hour. And then I booked a pilot for Comedy Central. And then my back just turned to shit. And I ended up actually having to pull out of the pilot. I couldn't even go to New York to film it. 
And I ended up moving home to kind of rehab my back and started a very stupid sports podcast. And you were, before we hardly even knew each other, I think I'd been on the morning show and we talked a bit. I was like, hey, do you want to come be on this show that nobody listens to? And you were kind enough to do it. And uh, I have been harassing you ever since. <laughs> I don't know that I don't know if you understood that was an agreement to a friendship that was going to be very one sided for half a decade. You know, I went back and looked at our friendship agreement and I saw that at the very, very bottom in that small print. But when I first signed our, our document and our contract, I did not see that. But I did recognize it later on when you just kept calling me. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, this, this was not in the original contract. Oh, oh, no, it actually was. It was at the very bottom. But Oh, no, um, this fucking lunatic thinks we're real friends. And I just pushed oh it along gosh. slowly enough that now it's a reality. It's called Manifest Destiny, Ben. Dude, you massaged that thing perfectly. So yep. I, did men- I did mention the podcast. I do want to make sure that I get that out. It's the Cy Amundsen Show. And then you have Middle of Somewhere with Chad Daniels as well. Correct. Yeah, middle of, middle of Somewhere is great. If you like comedy, listen to that one. If you're a fucking lunatic, give the Cy Amundsen show a try. It's the, it, is, it is one of the things that makes me the happiest in the world because I do it with one of my best friends, a really talented comedian named Blake Wexler, a friend of mine, Tom Schreier, who runs Zone Coverage in, in Minneapolis, but then one of my adult nephews, who's like 28, Ethan, He's on it. And it is, it is mania. Like this year, Blake and I take it so non-seriously that this year we started calling in, pretending to be callers on our own show. And I would call in as a Packer fan named Keith from Oshkosh. And uh, at one point, Blake pretended to call in as his wife And for like 20 minutes on the show, it was two characters arguing. So anybody who likes sports was had to have thought, fuck this, I'm out. And then the next week, we had one of our friends pretend to call in as a police officer saying that after the fight on our show, Keith went or uh, Keith's wife went missing. And so for the entire football season, we've been talking football. But we've also been having all these weird characters from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, call into our show and unravel a murder mystery that's happening in Wisconsin right now. So I can't believe anybody who's still listening to my sports show is a lunatic. Uh, So (laughs) let's pump the other one. The other one is uh, (laughs) the way to go. Uh, Well, I love it. Obviously, um, you, you and I have connected through the Vikings and stuff, but you are, you're a huge sports rube. Like you just kind of know, you guys will talk everything. I know you guys probably focus on, especially in the football season, Viking stuff in the NFL, but you're a sports junkie. Like you like all sorts of sports. Yeah, I love it. I'm a, I'm a huge NBA guy. And obviously the, the Vikings, I love the NFL and the Vikings are my, my favorite team. So that's been the weirdest thing. I, I'm not able to shut it off, you know, Thankfully, when when SportsCenter hired me, they wanted that. They wanted you to be a fan. So I remember when the Vic- or the the Timberwolves were in a playoff race, and Tibbs Tibbs made some like horrible court coaching move. And so on the show, we cut from the highlights back to me just destroying a a break room, like throwing cups and shit. 
And so that that show allowed me to still be a, a fan. It's it's it is weird though, like coming on K Fan or I love working for the Vikings, but I always have to remember that I work there and I'm not just a fan. So I don't tweet or say something that'll get me in trouble because I still have that dumb sports fan just hanging out right in the front of my mouth. Yeah. No, I you and I you and I both. It's there are certainly some days where I'd love to tweet out something else, but I have to keep in mind that uh, I don't think my employer would like this too much. But um, I do want to let's let's go all the way back to sort of your your beginning, your origin. Um, when you mentioned Los Angeles and you mentioned your your desire to get into comedy, at what age and what propelled you in those moments? And you said, you know what, I, I, I'm kind of funny. You know, maybe I should do this as a profession or maybe you didn't think about it as a profession. Maybe you thought, hey, this will this will be fun. I'll just go to open mic night and see what happens. Like, what was the thought process with all that? Uh, I don't it's, I don't know that it's a cool origin story. I always love those comedians who are like when I was eight years old, I used to sneak into my parents basement and listen to their Richard Pryor albums. You're like, you fucking liar. My <laughs> mine isn't anything like that. I was a really insecure little kid who loved Adam Sandler, you know, and I, I was kind of, well, first I, I would say I was obsessed with Nick at night. My dad, he wasn't like overly strict. He's not a strict person, but he at some point made the rule that he didn't want his little children watching MTV. So all I would really watch in the evenings was Nick at night. So I was obsessed with Green Acres and, and Get Smart and Mr. Ed and Mary Tyler Moore and Dick Van Dyke and all these shows. So as a little kid, like little, little, I was like, oh, I want I want this. I want because like Dick Van Dyke was a star of the show. It was named after like you saw the funny person and they had a show wrapped around them. So even being really young, I was really into that idea of being the centerpiece of something that made everybody laugh. And then I think I was just so wildly insecure and a bunch of, I was probably picked on a lot by my friend group. And the only time that I got the attention was when I was funny. And then I also have a gaggle of brothers and sisters. So I think when, and not to psychoanalyze myself, but I, I was probably pretty desperate for attention. And when I was funny, I got attention. So by the time I was in seventh grade, I was probably making these dumbass little videos and Saturday Night Live style sketches. And I was still doing that when I was 18, 19, 20. And then my brother-in-law, John, uh, I was living with my sister and, and her husband, John, and he's been such an incredible supporter of my stand-up. Before I even knew what stand-up was, he said, hey, there's this funniest person in the Twin Cities contest. You, you should look into that. And I did, and I didn't do it right away, but then I started getting on stage and did the contest and just absolutely fell in love with stand-up. And initially I saw stand-up kind of as like the vehicle, like, oh, because I didn't go to acting school or any of that stuff. I was like, oh, if you can get really good at this, all those other dreams like TV show, movie, those stuff, those could become a reality. And then once I was into stand up, I just really, really fell in love with it. 
probably for those same insecure reasons. It's going up on stage with an idea that you came up with and immediately finding out if it's good or bad, that immediate reaction of a human crowd. I just fell in love with that right away. And uh, so, yeah, that, that, that was kind of, I don't know if it was some light bulb moment, but it was something that was always there. And then my brother-in-law, John, put me on the right path. And he was also the guy who was cool enough to five times a week, I would walk into the house and I'd be like, John, listen to my joke. And he would listen to all of them, laugh harder than he should, and probably gave me the irrational confidence to keep doing it. Are you someone who deals with chronic soreness? Maybe it's sore and achy joints from an old injury, or you're an active person who pushes their bodies, or maybe it's age-related arthritis. Whatever the cause, I have the solution for you. It's called IASO, I-A-S-O, and it's a revolutionary therapy device that uses 100-year-old scientifically proven cold laser technology. This South Korean wonder device is the only cold laser device that can be used at home and hands-free. Most of the time, you have to go to some sort of hospital or clinic to get this type of treatment because of the size of the machine. But Iaso has engineered this potent light therapy into a device that fits into the palm of your hand. I use my devices all the time on my arthritic knee and my bulging disc in my neck with relieving results. And guess what? It's all done pain-free. Go to wellscare.net or bestbuy.com. That's wellscare.net or bestbuy.com to purchase and start enjoying your life pain-free with IASO. You've obviously been successful and and especially with your style, like I mentioned before, you're kind of a storyteller. When you first, when you first got out there for the funniest man in the Twin Cities, did you feel like Oh, I just got to have all these like one-liner zinger jokes. Like how long did it take for you to find your style and your approach? Um, I, I've, I keep using the word lucky, but it's true. I've been really lucky to be around, have peers and kind of mentors that do things so correctly. And so at first it was just doing anything to, to get a laugh. I think my first time on stage, I told a horrific Michael Jackson joke, like horrific. No. No. Yeah. yeah. One that I, now I look back and I'm like, I'm glad that wasn't a Twitter joke. Cause somebody would probably bring that shit up. And so early on, you don't know how to write and you don't even really know what's, what's going to work or how to get people less. So you're almost kind of like, feeling yourself through a dark room like oh oh there's a there's a joke that works why and then you think Mm. like why did that work oh there's a joke why did that work so the first few years for me I remember even when I started getting regular time at Acme and everybody was so desperate for regular time there there were weeks where I was like I don't want to go up I don't have anything I don't know how to do this and but slowly I kind of figured out what got people to laugh and then one of my best friends Brooks Robinson Uh, not the baseball player. Uh, He was coming up as a comic at the same time as me. And when he and I's friendship kind of cemented, because he was so different, he was dark and kind of funny, but he had like an artistic vibe. Like I was, he's somebody who you could be very jealous of because he was very cool and interesting and artistic and funny and talented, but so different than me. 
when he and I became friends and realized that we kind of made each other laugh and that whenever I was myself, he really, really dug it is when I started just kind of doing whatever I wanted to do. And at that time, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to do weird characters and I wanted to tell stories. And so I remember some of them went well. I remember I went up on stage pretending to be Chris Angel, the no, magician. And I, I, wound, I had my friend Joel in the back on the God mic. And every time I would say my name, he would just whisper, Chris Angel. And so I was putting on a, a fake magic show on stage and somehow I wound up in the crowd with my shirt off trying to do a card trick to a guy who was at best homophobic and, oh, no. <laughs> and, and just like a monster. And he started physically threatening me and it got out of control and, but it was wild and funny. So like I got to do a bunch of weird characters at the open mic and that kind of was like, okay, fuck it, do whatever you want. And so then I started telling longer jokes and, and then kind of just, you know, slowly learned that in order to tell a longer joke, it's usually made up of a bunch of small jokes and, you know, just looking up to people I, I really like and that are really good at it and asking a bunch of questions. It's, it's just kind of ev an evolution. I, as anybody who's listening to this show already can tell I'm wildly long winded and so uh, that's probably always the direction I was going. It just kind of took me a while to figure out what I exactly wanted to do and what my style of humor was. But that also goes back to that Acme thing. This Lewis Lee, the owner of Acme, and the, the, the vibe he has cultivated there is, I'll tell you this story. So this is, I've been hired there. I'm a fixture at the club. Chad, Daniels, and I. Mm -hmm. are running this week called uh oh shit what's the name what was the name of the show um oh it's called the punchline punch out our, our friend andy erickson had come up with it and it's two teams two teams of five comics and each night you face one comic from the other team and you get that morning you get or the night before you get a word so like if you and i were facing each other the next night and our word was jury you and okay. I would have the day to write five minutes on the topic of juries or jury, right? And then that night we would go on stage, we would each do our five minutes and then the audience would vote what they liked better. And one of the nights, Brooks, my friend, got, he was facing Chad and they got the word fired. And okay. Brooks goes up on stage and he goes, you know, I didn't know what to do for tonight. So I started thinking about the only way you can possibly get fired from stand-up comedy. And then he goes, maybe if you take drugs on stage. And he took out a bag of magic mushrooms no. and, took some, and took some mushrooms on stage. And then he said, the only other person who's ever been fired from here got naked on stage. And the crowd was like, wait, what? And so Brooks takes out his phone and sets it next to the mic. And it starts playing like, like kind of like techno-y stripper music. Sure, yeah. And he starts stripping, right? And everybody's like, what is happening? And so his shirt comes off. 
and his undershirt comes off, his socks and shoes are gone, his pants is gone. He's all the way down to his boxers and, and people are going bananas. This is a sold out room. Like I said, 270, 280, something like that. He's up there down to his underwear and he's kind of like gyrating and grinding a little bit. And Brooks is, he's a really handsome guy, but he's, he's really tall and slender, dark, dark hair, dark face, kind of like artistically handsome. And <laughs> he's just grinding. And then he starts like toying with his boxers a little bit, like pulling them down kind of towards the pelvic bone. And you can hear he's getting closer to actually undressing. And you can hear people in the crowd like, no, don't do it. No. And they're like, there's people standing up. It's this weird, tense environment. And then whoom, he just rips the clothes off, just dong in the wind. I have never been in a room the place went fucking bananas with shock and laughter and applause. And like, I've never experienced anything like it. And so he finishes, puts his boxers back on and did subtly one of the funniest things I've ever seen. He walks back towards the curtain and before he leaves the stage, he just turns around and yanks his boxers down and flashes the crowd <laughs> one more time. <laughs> and then Chad's up next, and Chad has to follow a guy who just took his penis out. And there's somehow, no way. There's no way. So, somehow Chad comes out with all of Brooks's clothes and just starts throwing them to the crowd as souvenirs. So there were a couple of amazing moments in this. The first was we, we got done with the show and we're all like, well, punchline punch out is over. When Lewis finds out about this, like we're screwed. Cause the reason you can't get nude is there's no nude. You need a nudity license. So you jeopardize your liquor license. If you have somebody naked in your club as a performer, right? Ooh. Okay. Yep. Didn't but know there's, that. There's, there's technicalities and loopholes and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're all thinking, well, Brooks is fired for real. And uh, we're not going to get to do punchline punch out anymore. And so, and the other thing is when you do stand up, people are always offended. You can say, Hey, I went to a horse race and the horse was fast. And the manager will get a letter about how you don't understand horse racing. Right. Somehow, Brooks took his dick out and they didn't get a single complaint, which is unbelievable. I think it was just so funny. I, I still to this day don't understand how that happened. So I, I came in the next day uh, to see Lewis um, around lunchtime, the owner, and we go sit down and I tell him what happened. And he just pauses for a second and he goes, was he trying to be funny? And I was like, yeah. He was, he goes, okay, well just don't do that again. And that was it. And I had this moment where I was like, well, this dude, and I knew this before, but this man who's built this club, he, a lot of people say they care about the art of standup or care about comedic development. This guy, no one has ever believed it. Like he just, are you trying to be funny? It's not my job to tell you who, what, where, when, are you genuinely I believe in you. I picked you as a comedian. I hired you. Are you trying to grow and be funny and, and do what you do and be who you are? And if so, I'm not going to get in the way. And it's that mentality. I know that was a long way to get back to your original question, but that mentality 
that he has as an owner just creates this world where you feel like you can take all these chances and do all these stupid things and fail in all these stupid ways that let you maybe not become the best comic in the world, but kind of become the best version of yourself, the best comic you sure, could be. Sure. So I, I hear comedians talk about this a lot about, you know, when they kill, you know, that, that feeling of when they kill, they're like, you know, I got out there and the crowd loved everything, all my punchlines, all my stories, the inflection, the tone, everything was perfect. Right. And that euphoric feeling when you walk off, but everybody else always talks about, you know, when they bomb and they go out there, maybe with the same material, but they just don't have it. Do you have one of those stories where you've just bombed on something you should not, not new material, but your own practiced material that you've had ironed out and you go out there and just shit the bed. One of those stories. I got a fucking million of those stories. Uh, stand up, stand up. Once you get to like developing and and being more of yourself and knowing what you really want to do, I think there's a bit of a a nuance and almost a musicality to it. Like that's when when a crowd is amazing. That was always my favorite thing. Was like you almost feel like you can direct them you know like like you're the orchestra what do they call I'm, I'm not a smart person what do they call the person that's leading the orchestra with the little wand composer you know? yeah yeah you almost feel like you're you're doing that to a crowd you're like oh i'm gonna push this sentence just a little bit long and oh i'm gonna take this sentence and i'm gonna shorten it up and say it this way there's almost like a really really fun musicality to it and the opposite is true when the crowd is not there and, and there's different types like I used to have jokes in my set when I was on the road or in a rough room where I knew early on try these couple jokes and you'll learn what sort of people these are like is this a dick and fart crowd or is this a crowd with some nuance that I can do exactly what I want sure but probably the worst failure I've had is I was in the Seattle International Comedy Competition pretty early on. And I was in it with a bunch of people who are just all over this industry right now doing really well. None of us, nobody knew who anybody was back then. And it's a week long competition. You do a, a show each night. So it's really, really exhausting. And I wasn't doing very well. But the final night, the only night anybody cared about was industry night, is what they called it. And Jeff Singer, who booked Just for Laughs, the Montreal Comedy Festival, was there. And that's, if you're a young comic and you get Just for Laughs, you're, you've got a chance at jumpstarting a career. Sure, sure. And so, tough week, but we were all like, oh, industry night. I, that's the night. We can show, show Singer who we are. And so, Singer was one of three industry judges. And I had to go first and I went up and I did my best material as best as I could. And I have never eaten shit like that before or since. I, I'm surprised people didn't throw fruit at me. It went horrifically. Oh. And after the show, I'm talking to my friend Ahmed Barucha and we were just kind of, commiserating on the week and the experience and the guy who runs the the competition peter gray comes up to me and he goes 
hey, Cy, you're never going to believe this, but we had, because they give you your scores afterwards. Like you got last place. These were your scores. Sure. And he goes, you're never going to believe this. We actually had to give one of the judges his scorecard back because we had to tell him he couldn't give you a negative number. I was like, oh, <laughs> and oh, Ahmed was God. like, Peter, why would you tell him that? And it was the, it was in the category of something like stage presence, like your ability to stand on a stage. She tried to give me a negative two out of 10. And that's in front of one of the most important people in our industry. So after that, you do go home and think, hey, what am I doing with my life? But f- fortunately, I had enough support around me to be like dude that doesn't matter just keep going but yeah that was a pretty that was a pretty impressive failure so do you and you knew that though at that time when you walked off the stage even though you felt really prepared to get out there did you feel yourself not having like a great presence on the stage like was it a a valid critique by her or she just kind of hated them um i don't you know i don't know if it was a i valid judging stand-up is a very weird thing to me in the first place a stand-up competition is silly because you know it's there's so many different types of stand-up it's be like let's have a music competition and you put eric church against t-pain you're like i don't know how are we supposed to decide what's good here and uh so uh, you know I, i judging is weird but so i don't know if her critique was valid i had a really 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 bad set and sometimes people just don't like you and it, it just doesn't and going first is really really difficult but I do remember you know I got off stage and my sister lives in Seattle so I went back to her house and I thought you know maybe I'm wasting my time with this and then I you know I ended up going back home and the moment I came back to Minneapolis I remember making a conscious decision the next day I went up and got on stage and the next day I got on stage a couple more times and I just that week got on stage more than I ever had in a week before, because I knew if I sat in that experience, there was a chance it would really sour anything going forward. And so I just kind of put my head down and, and powered through. You know, what's interesting about that is you talked earlier about you were a super, super self-conscious kid um, growing up, but yet you have this ability to not only recognize some of that, but that's a lot of mental toughness to take that situation and then only take 24 hours or 48 hours and know that you got to get right back on stage. You know, like, I, I feel like there, there's a certain amount of mental fortitude that you, you have, even though that you say that you were, you know, kind of this way as a, a different way as a kid. Yeah. I, I mean, I think insecurity and, you know, perseverance, can maybe go hand in hand one can you know probably drive the other one a little bit but i i was just i was just fortunate i had like i we talked about chad daniels mike brody who's another great comic jesse campbell i had these friends who were above me in the industry who were succeeding and they were so honest and and in preparing me for what comedy was and that being in comedy and for that matter, being in, I assume, any sort of performing art, acting, music, any of that stuff, it's just a gigantic series of failures. And if you look at them all as failures, you're going to be really fucking miserable. 
and I had I had this amazing moment with my dad where I was I was writing all the time. I was on the road all the time. Like stand up had consumed me. And we were sitting up at the cabin at my parents' cabin and sitting on a deck because they, they owned a resort for years. They were teachers. And then in the summertime, as their second job, they ran a resort. And so one of my dad's best friends and his kids rented a trailer up there. And so we were, my dad and I were sitting on the deck this summer day. And one of my best friends is he's down in the water playing with his kids. And I'm, I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but I remember him saying, I'm trying to tell my dad some dumbass joke. Like, Hey, is this funny? Is this funny? And he goes, look at your friend down there. And I, he was like, you know, he's, he ran a hardwood flooring business. He goes, he's a hardwood floor, but you know, at a certain point he's done putting in hardwood floors and he's a dad and he's a friend and he likes softball and he likes country music. And he just kind of described the other parts of his personality. And he goes, it seems to me what I've noticed about you and the people you are around and your career is that it's a dream. And it's so closely tied to your identity that if you fail at this dream, you're failing at your identity, you're failing at your goals instead of just having a bad day at work. And he goes, I think you're going to need to figure out how to compartmentalize and have bad days and still be a person. And so I think all that advice I got from all those other comedians about how to persevere and how to not care about failure was really cemented by that with my dad, where I started pulling back and not killing myself out on the road as much. And I stopped spending every waking minute of every waking day writing material. And maybe I was a little less prolific, but I think my standup got a lot better because I was also living a life and I was also happy. And so I, right. I think that kind of set me down a path of, and that's what I always tell anybody who asks about doing standup or advancing in standup. It's like, you have to separate standup. You have to emotionally recognize it as a job and understand that it's going to be filled with failures and be okay with that failure and go be able to do something else you love afterwards, or you're just probably going to walk a long path of misery. You know, what's interesting about that? Cause I do think that that is amazing advice for everybody and whatever they do. I mean, even in, in my old profession, it was the same way with football players. I mean, yep. you know, you, you, you fail in front of other people, and it can ruin your day and you put so much into it, you feel like it ruins sort of your existence, um, even though it could just be a fleeting moment. And then you have an opportunity the next day to sort of, you know, recalibrate yourself and perform at a better level and, and make everything right. The point is, I think what's different about what you guys do as a profession is all the comedians that I've been around, whether they're stand-up comedians or they do improv, is they're extremely aware of their surroundings and they're always taking in inputs, whether it's from the current events, whether it's learning about what a jury does when they get a word the night before and how to craft that into a joke. You know, I, I, I got to imagine it's got to be hard to kind of turn that off, you know, 
being a comedian and being an artistic is, is a hard thing to say, well, I'm only going to be artistic from eight to five today, you know, and I'm, and I'm going to turn it off after I get off my set at 11 PM and I'm not going to let it ruin my day the next day because you guys are all very smart. You know, you're, you have to be aware of the world surroundings the the, the national surroundings, what's going on socially, um, what other people are doing. I, I think it's great advice, but I also think it's, got to be really hard for you to toe that line and to walk that narrow line of being obsessive compulsive about it uh and also having a normal life sure well as you know i am very much obsessive compulsive because i have that real disorder so that's that is how my brain works but i I think maybe you know and and i can't speak every comedian in their process is is different you know to me, scheduling helped a lot. I was like, here's when I'm going to write stuff. And then I would always just carry, this is before notes and phones. I would always just carry, I worked at a restaurant. So I always had like receipt tabs in my pocket that, oh, that's funny. I'll write that down. And then later when I have my, my writing time that I have scheduled, I'll, I'll work on that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you try to, you know, schedule it out as a real job. But I, I just kind of always assume that the comedians who I like and who I think are really good just kind of are inherently themselves. And so, you know, it's not like you're turning anything on or off. It's just, when are you going to exert yourself into the craft? You know what I'm saying? Like, right. This is the dumbest analogy, but I think my favorite comics, you remember the movie, the mask with Jim oh, Carrey. Yeah. Yep. And you remember how, Whenever the, this is such a dumb analogy, but when Jim Carrey put the mask on, he became a cartoon character. But when Dorian Gray put the mask on, he became super evil. And when the dog, like the mask kind of just made you a ridiculous version of who you truly were as a person. And that, that's kind of the stage, I think, for the comedians I like, where they just seem really genuinely themselves on stage. It's just a really crafted built up version of themselves it's just it's really genuine and so you know I I can't speak to anybody else but to me it was just you're always that person it's just being able to compartmentalize when you really exert yourself and treating it as a job in that way in terms of effort and mental bandwidth and emotional bandwidth and and stuff like that you know what's interesting about that is I was told um by a friend of mine that's in acting that they said they were told when they're kind of going through acting school and learning the craft that when you look at most actors, male and female, that a large portion of them, probably 90% of them, they're only really acting about five or 10% outside either way, either side of their personality, five or 10% either way outside of their normal personality. And, and there are some exceptions that, you know, there are some, you know, probably DiCaprio is one of these guys that can go beyond that 10%, but they're saying that the best actors are really just a little bit more of an exaggeration of themselves. And, and I think that seems like that's kind of what you're leaning towards in, in the artistic realm of being genuine and having that come out on stage or on camera. Uh, you might push yourself and stretch yourself a little bit, but you're not going so far that's not believable. Yeah, that was the interesting thing for me with acting because I, I, I'm a terrible auditioner. I don't think I'm a horrible actor, but auditioning is such a weird thing. But I, 
I, growing up, uh, I had what can only be described as an insane amount of acne. <laughs> so through, through high school, I had like an Abe Lincoln style beard of zits and then also oh, zits man. everywhere else. Like my, I look like a cherry with zits on top of it. Like I'll, I'll send you for your, for, for your promo of the show this week, I'll send you one of my senior pictures and you'll be like, what the fuck is this? And uh, so <laughs> I was, I, I, you know, so you grow up, I grew up kind of, uh, you know, bunch bunch of zits. I had, I had a perception of myself and then I graduated high school and I grew a couple inches and all the zits went away and I started getting good at stand up and I didn't really have any idea of, uh, you know, what type of person I was perceived as, but all of a sudden I'm six, four, 200 pounds. And I go out to LA after I get my agent and my manager and I do Montreal and I'm sitting in all these meetings and meeting casting directors and they, all looking at you and you get to know them and they go, Oh, look, let's, you know, I kind of, people thought I kind of had like a frat boy look to me, like an eighties. Sure. I look like a villain in an eighties movie. Yep. And so like in college, I lived at home in college, you know, and, and then I lived off campus by myself my last couple years and I don't drink. I despise the frat life to each their own, but I'm really not, not, I get, well, I guess I'm not fun is what I'm trying to say. But yeah, so yeah. every audition they'd go and they'd be like, all right, this guy's name is Chaz. Uh, he just jerked off in front of the entire party and he drives a Trans Am. You're like, I don't know how to connect with that. And then any of the characters that I connected with, uh, A, I didn't maybe look the part. And if I did, you'd get there and you'd see these actors. You're like, oh, these guys are all really good actors. All right, I'm going to go home. So I, I think you're probably right you know, you usually stand in that five to 10%. It's just, I think my five to 10% was a uh, frat douche and I wasn't able to get very good at that. Yeah. You were the, the no fun kid at the frat party. Stand yeah. In the corner, I'm a non-frat douche. Yeah. But hey, when you're, when you're shooting and you're, you're coming up with a movie, we've all seen that one character that just thinks that he's not kind of above it all and everybody else is, is being ridiculous of course you could play that guy oh no i can't i failed miss i was ho horrible horrible auditioner a top five poor auditioner so well i don't see how anybody can audition well it seems like the most sterile environment they give you a little bit of direction and it's like all right go and you're like wait what and there's no feedback they just give you a straight face or something um I, I can't imagine anybody's a really good auditioner. Yeah, well, some of them have got to be better than me than I am, I would assume. Who is the guy, and I'm going to butcher his name, the comedian from England? Uh, God, I'm going to... I mean, the Jim... Um, no, Jim is from Australia, I think. No. Daniel Sloss. Uh, no, Jimmy, Jimmy... Yeah, this is this is he, bad he was in, he me was just in, guessing he was in, somebody. Yeah, and me and me losing my train of thought trying to think of who it is. He was in forgetting Sarah Marshall. He, oh, Russell the, Brand. Uh, Russell, Russell Brand. Brand. I love forgetting I think, Sarah Marshall. Yeah, Russell Brand. And I feel like his his whole audition for forgetting Sarah Marshall went pretty viral uh, years later. But 
that was an audition. I'm like, you have to cast this guy. He absolutely yeah. crushed this audition. Had everybody in the room just dying laughing. And I'm like, that's, I guess that's how you audition. I was in a, uh, an independent pilot, like this weird pilot presentation thing with James Roday, who was, he played Sean on Psych, which is one of my favorite shows. And then he's on A Million Little Things. He's an incredible actor, but I got to see him up close you know, I, I knew what the script was and I got to see him improv and watch him actually act. And you just sat there and you went, holy shit. Because some of these people are so talented and so good at the entire process. It's, uh, it, I am not one of those people, but when you see it, it's pretty amazing. All right, is that something you want to work on, though? Do you want to get... No. Do you want to... No. No. <laughs> no just just stick, at, stick with comedy. Yeah, at this point, I like my lot in life. <laughs> auditioning is a lot of like you got to get I was fine with it because of stand-up but auditioning is a lot of failing like if you if you book once every 30 times holy shit you booked a part so it's auditioning is a brutal path of failures and uh, I you know I like I like where I'm at what if somebody says okay Cy, we know you we know the part you you want and they, they just book you right then would you would you go back to doing a tv know. show or something like that acting uh, if I had my full health and I had every, all things were equal, I would give it a try. But, you know, I don't, uh, I like what I do. I'm, I'm at a place where I'm getting to make things with people I really enjoy and I'm making a living doing it. And I'm at home with my wife a lot and I get to spend time. So I'm, I'm pretty happy. I, you know, I'm not naive enough to say that I would turn down something that I've always dreamt of, but I, I really like what I'm doing right now. Right. Now, do you want to, you've kind of touched on it a little bit too, your, your health, like, can you quickly just kind of go through your situation and your battle that you've had the last couple of years? Uh, sure. Yeah. I, yeah, I mentioned earlier, I kind of started having back problems and moved home and my dad has a shitty back. So I thought it was just something that ran in the family and it was a brutal process, but started getting through it. And then I got the, the job at ESPN doing sports centers. So I started flying out to Bristol every week and getting the career back on track and doing something fun. And, you know, then as I was kind of still working for ESPN, back kind of started getting worse a little bit. And then I came home and I was starting to work for the Vikings and ESPN. And then it just started just getting worse and worse and worse. And all of a sudden now my shoulder and my hips and just a lot of stiffness and a lot of mobility issues. And we kept seeing doctor after doctor after doctor that, you know, I didn't test for anything. And then finally last year in December, they, a dermatologist found small patches of psoriasis on my heels and knees. Yep. And that was the smoking gun to say I had either psoriatic arthritis or some sort of other spondy arthritis, I think is the term. It's basically an inflammatory arthritis of the spine. And uh, so, yeah, that kind of, that sure has changed life a lot. And we're on that journey right now of trying different medications and, and physical therapy and all that stuff. And hoping to go the right way, but it was, it was nice to at least get an answer. Cause 
my sister had an autoimmune, has an autoimmune disease. She has psoriasis and which has turned to psoriatic arthritis for her. And hmm. the problem with her is they call them seronegative, I think is the term where you don't test for it. You don't have any of the, the markers that predispose you to it, or you don't show any inflammation in the blood. So she had these diseases and didn't show it on any tests. So when I went in and I didn't have psoriasis on the skin and I didn't test for it, it made it so hard for the rheumatologists to, you know, actually say, this is it, let's get him on medication. So when, uh, when an incredible dermatologist and it was funny, my wife and I were in the room and the dermatologist, her name's Dr. Tureen. She's in Minneapolis. She's fucking fantastic. She walks in almost dismissively like, yeah, those are, that's psoriasis. I can't, maybe we'll get you some cream. It's no big deal. And she almost starts leaving. And my wife and I just started cry, crying because uh -oh. we'd been through this horrible five, six years. And she's like, whoa, wait, what? Whoa, what's happening? And the assistant was like, oh, he has spine problems. No one's been able to diagnose it. And she's like, oh my gosh. And she set us up with a rheumatologist and the whole thing. But it was like this cathartic, end to a horrific journey that was all found by a badass dermatologist looking at my heels. God, that's crazy how your body can respond in weird ways to sort of flag other things that are going on. And, um, well, you and I have even talked about this, you know, when you're going through this process. So I'm, I couldn't be, ha I couldn't be happier for you in the fact that you've at least found an answer because that's all everybody wants is, the unknown is probably the scariest part. You're like, okay, I'm feeling all these things and all these things are happening, but nobody, all these, all these professionals with these initials behind their names still can't tell me what's going on. Like, I know I'm not right. And you are sit, sitting there left to wonder, and that can be the worst part of it. So, you know, having answers is, is more than half the battle. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, it's a, it's a, peace of mind so you're not driving yourself insane that's yeah that's for sure and it at least maybe carves a path where you think you can get to a better version of life so yeah it's it's a, having an answer is a really powerful thing for sure and you know part of it i you know we were talking about how unfun i was in college but i think i always lived such a I really liked exercise. I took care of myself. I ate really, really cleanly, you know, and I think, you know, it's an inflammatory disease. And a lot of people out there do a lot of inflammatory shit. Like they eat really bad food, you know, consume substances, stuff like that, that can really kick the system's ass. And at this point, some of the theory behind what took it so long for the, because if you have a relative, it's not uncommon to develop, normally people get psoriasis and then psoriatic arthritis, but if it runs in your family, you can be one of those rare cases, I guess, where you get the arthritis first before the psoriasis presents. Hmm. And part of the theory is, you know, on me is that if I was eating well and taking care of myself, you know, it takes a lot longer. And then the moment I started having problems, I went crazy with my diet and all these things. So you know, maybe, maybe my choices were hiding some of the symptoms and that might've taken a little bit, taken us a little bit longer to get there too, which is odd to think about. So is this condition preventing you from doing live stand-up shows? Yeah, 100%. Or is this something you can, okay. 
Is this something 100%. that you can manage to get back out on the stage soon? I don't know. I, I think it's, yeah, I don't, I don't need to be grim, but it, it basically took away every, I want to say this without sounding too dark. It's stolen joy from every, I say that and then I say this sentence. It's really, it's taken the joy from most aspects of, because I'm, it's a stiffness thing and it's a, a mobility thing. So I, it's hard for me to sit for too long. It's hard for me to lay down. It's hard for me to stand in a singular position. It's a lot of mobility. So it's no, no sports, no, all my hobbies are all kind of gone. And, you know, even going out to a restaurant and sitting down in a booth for 30 minutes is really, really hard. And uh, performing would be nearly impossible. And, uh, but that doesn't mean forever. You know, we, we just, we went through the first medication and it didn't really do much. And now I'm being switched on to another one. And there's a lot of stories of people who get on the meds and return to life. But at, at this point, you know, fortunately, because of kind of that whole perseverance, like getting used to failure or disappointment, you know, that's, that's why I'm focused on the podcasts and, you know, some of the other things we do. I love my job with the Vikings because there are still parts of my profession that I can do and stay connected to and, and be good at, but live performance right now. And, and then just in general, because of this whole fucking pandemic bullshit, you know, I'm, they got me on these heavy duty drugs and it probably isn't the best thing in the world for me to be in front of 300 people in a tight knit room right now. So yeah, right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of hoping the meds take us a good direction by the time the world goes a good direction and maybe all that shit will sync up. And the, the bummer thing is I had an album. So right before the pandemic, right before, because after the pandemic, I just started getting sicker and sicker and sicker. It was like a downward spiral for like a year before the diagnosis. And Right before the pandemic, I had made a deal to record an hour special and a new album with all this material I'd been working on for a couple of years that I loved. And then, uh, yeah, then the world shut down. And by the time we were able to put people in rooms again, I wasn't able to perform it. So if we can, uh, if everything goes and syncs up the right way, like I'll walk back on a stage and within a month, I'll have a, I'll have a brand new album that'll probably be done and ready to ship out dude that's uh that's awesome and you know that i'm here for you for whatever you need uh with whatever it comes health and, and i don't need wise. your fucking pity ben um, this is you know don't I'm only you gonna restrict give it, me <laughs> i'm only gonna give it to you publicly on this podcast and then privately sure. i'm just gonna shame you and uh but I, if anybody is out there listening, uh, I don't know that maybe you, I know you've got all the, the resources that you, you need, but, um, I would love to see you get back out there and get that album done and we can go out there and show up and, and support you and dead deadpan you and make it seem like you're bombing. Um, that would be hilarious if we could all just do that one more time. Yeah. Just r ruin an important night for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing a lot of things <laughs> I love and hopefully i'll do that again at some point and you know that's the thing i love about the podcast with chad it's a lot of comedic storytelling so it's it's not in front of a crowd but i get to make one of my best friends laugh in kind of the same style that i use on stage so that there are still outlets for sure okay well enough of that enough of that stuff with your health i know that you um 
it's it, I can tell it's it's a little tough to talk about because you, obviously you don't want the self pity and you don't want to like woe is me. Um, so let's divert away from that and let's talk about something way way more lighthearted, but like OCD. Because everybody, when, when everybody thinks about, hey, from one sickness to another sickness, let's talk. Let's talk about at the Thanksgiving by the way, dinner table. By the way, this is this is going to be the most actually restricted episode. They're like it's supposed to be unrestricted, but this psy guy with that autoimmune disease and mental health condition, he sounds pretty fucking restricted. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> nothing, nothing is more funny than obsessive compulsive disorder. Well, that's, that's part our friendship, really, I remember you and you and Chad came to Greenway came to my album recording. And that's the first time I think you'd seen me for a full hour. And everybody's favorite bit on that is about OCD. And I think that's kind of that and the the dunking thing at the end, that's kind of the birthplace of our bond. You liked that bit. So I loved uh, it. You, I did love it. Yeah, I, I I think that's when I do think, you know, with stuff like that, I'm, there's been a lot of people who appreciate when you can talk about it with some levity and not a lecture way. And I, I was always really hesitant to talk about OCD because it was just, you know, it's mine and I, I deal with it and I don't want to make a parade out of it. But then you'll get one of these messages like, oh, I just heard this and this and this. And, you know, it's always nice when people like hearing that stuff or it means there's something about and I bet you felt this as a football player there's different sorts of appreciation you can get and remember I'm insecure so I'm in this for the appreciation (laughs) uh but you know you have a fan come up to you and they're like just a drunk dipshit like we saw in the jersey or I think you're awesome you remember when you hit that guy like but then there are people who come up to you and you can tell how much like for the Vikings and you, for example, how much football means to them and meant to their dad and their mom and their family. And, you know, it's truly a wonderful escape for them. And then those are the type of people that you're like, Oh, Holy shit. Thank you for saying that. That makes me feel so, you know, you know, so good. And that, that same thing happens in stand up. Like when you have somebody come up to you like, Hey, I just, this thing you talk about with your OCD, thank you for doing that. It meant this and this and this. So I always love those those conversations when did you find the comedy in your ocd i mean obviously you probably realized that you you grew up with it and i'm sure it was just like everything else it's like oh wait what is this why am i doing this why am i why is my brain telling me to do this thing and i'm sure it was confusing for a while and then when when was the moment you're like this shit's actually kind of funny i I should make a bit out of this well so i mean a couple of things i'll say i didn't I had a manager who was also like basically my first manager and was also became a close friend. So she could, she felt like she could shit talk me basically. And she didn't feel like I was very authentic on stage early in my career. And she wanted me to start talking about some of that stuff. And so when I wrote the first bit about it and it did really well, I was like, well, I guess this, she's right. And so I kind of started re-examining some of it i i don't like i don't want to talk i my least favorite thing is people who talk about stuff just for the sake of talking about it if i'm going to tell you about my ocd the thing i'm going to tell you has to be funnier than it is about like it's it's an equation like if you're going to be dirty be funnier than you are dirty it makes the dirty okay 
right? Right. So I right. kind of felt that same way with talking about my OCD. But my, mine is kind of, and I'm still, I thought of something kind of funny, at least in retrospect the other day, because mine is, I didn't have OCD as a kid. So I had at 18, I had dealt with a traumatic experience that caused all sort of like anxiety issues. And okay. I, I grew up in, a, I grew up in Worthington and, you know, at that time, you know, and I'm not going to get myself in trouble here by shitting on a medical entity, but what was happening in a lot of small towns, you know, down in the corner of the state and up kind of by Fargo is a lot of the small town hospitals were it kind of felt like they were, and I'm not saying this is right. I'm just giving you my impression. It kind of felt like they were becoming satellite hospitals for a larger entity. You know, like sure. if you really need something, you have to go to Sioux Falls. If you really need something, you have to go to Fargo. And, and you kind of felt like, I don't know when the hospitals started getting bought out, like if the resources are here. So when I, when I first started dealing with all this anxiety, I didn't know what it was. I thought I'd gone insane, right? I thought I was just, my brain was ruined and it was going to be ruined forever. Mm -hmm. And so it was just, I was just on the computer Googling by myself and I never heard of any really mental health stuff, you know, just some dumb hick trying to diagnose myself. And I found out what PTSD was. And I, that's what I was like, Oh, I have this, I have PTSD. And I absolutely did not. That is not what I had, but yeah learning what that was led me to, okay, let's go to, you know, a therapist in town. And, and so I kind of went to somebody and they laid the building blocks of like, oh, you have panic attacks and you have anxiety and, you know, at least an understanding of what it was, but that, that was mm -hmm. kind of it. And then I slowly just started coping with it on my own and kind of just developed OCD as a coping mechanism because, oh, gotcha. because OCD is obviously control based. And, you know, when you're dealing with anxiety, I just felt like I, I didn't have control. Like when you go through a horrific event and then you're screwed up mentally from it, it feels like you want to prevent that. You want to control. And, 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 and right after, so it was back to back events. Cause right after the one, my sister died in a car crash when she was 18. I was nine, nine, I was 18. She had just turned 18. She, my, we had, we have a weird family where four adoptions, two different dads, a bunch of kids, yada, yada, yada. My sister, Sarah passed away in a car crash. And so, you know, all these things that felt like they were out of my control, my anxiety, the event that I went through going through my sister's death, all combined into a few months you know, you start wanting control. And so OCD comes in. And so you have these obsessions like, oh my gosh, somebody I love is going to die. Or, oh my gosh, I'm going to have a giant panic attack. Or, oh no, I'm going to die. You know, all these irrational thoughts. And then you obsess over them. And then, a you know, some people's OCD is like, they have to keep stuff clean or they have to keep themselves clean or they do things in numbers. Mine was more free flowing where it was just more about the thoughts that were in my brain. So it was like, whether it was me trying to get into my car door or it was me shutting off a light in the house, or it's me walking down a sidewalk, my compulsions would manifest differently 
And it would be like, you have to get something right. So I'd wind up in a room like, you have to turn this light on and off four times correctly, or you know, your uncle's gonna die, right? That sort of stuff. And, and even, even then, because I, I got it as an adult, I knew it was irrational. You know, right. I, you know it's irrational, but you still, I still couldn't overcome it. It's kind of like being a little kid and you know there's not a boogeyman underneath your bed, but you just can't overcome that he's not under there. So you have to have somebody check. That, that's kind of what my OCD was like. And so I, it, it, it was a coping mechanism. <laughs> and before I realized it, it had gotten out of fucking control. Really? Like it was in every moment of every single second of, so like think of an action you make as a human being. You take a step, you turn a doorknob, you put on a shirt. I had OCD connected to every single human action nearly that I committed. My and, goodness. And it was, I remember I was going to school at Augsburg at the time when it got really bad. I went there for a semester and by the end of the semester, I like, I would get home at two o'clock and I would just lay on the couch and be done for the day. Cause I was just so emotionally and physically exhausted. And th there are people who have, you know, OCD is such an individual journey. You know, the disease yeah. is so individual to the person, the way it manifests. There are people who have it so much worse than I, than I even had it at my worst where it's like, they, they don't, they're stuck in their house checking a stove for four hours. They just can't overcome it, you know, or, and so, you know, I, I finally got a good therapist who explained to me some cognitive behavioral things in my mid twenties that helped me through a pretty tough time. And then the last couple of years, I found a really, cause it, it, it never went away. It was always there, you know, and it's a pretty right. active part of my life, but I was managing it better. And then the last couple of years, I've found an amazing therapist in Minneapolis that's slowly, I'd like to get to the point where I could really, really minimalize it um, almost completely. But it's, it's still a pretty big part of my life. But to circle, as I do my OCD TED talk, to circle back to the humor thing. <laughs> yeah. I tell you all that because just to kind of set the table. So like before I really knew what OCD was. So I was seeing like my second, I, it took me like three or four or five therapists to finally, maybe three or four to finally find the person who understood cognitive behavioral therapy, which yeah. I'm a huge proponent of um, just changing, changing, you know, your, your actions and your responses to help you change your thought processes um, is the dumbest way that I can explain it. But when I was in the throes of it, like where everything was OCD, this weird thing started happening where I was able to recognize, I was like, this is ruining my fucking day. And it was right. always like, there was this, this is going to make me, you know, this is a little bit of the curtain pulled back here, but you're so worried about something horrible happening. But when you commit the compulsion, it's like you're making a protection or a deal. Like I, shut the door like this. So now my uncle Craig lives or now I'm going to live. And I don't know how I got to this point, but I, there's this golf course up North by my parents, by that little resort. Yep. My grandma and my great aunt 
you know, my parents were teachers, so they had gone back. School hadn't started for me. So I am, you know, I'm a college kid and I'm just staying up at the resort with just my grandma, and my great aunt, and I'm, I'm golfing a lot. And I had started making kind of like little deals with myself. Like, hey, if you do this, you'll, you know, I don't know how to explain it, but if you execute this OCD correctly, you are, it was almost like I, as an extra coping mechanism, I recognized how drained I was getting. And I was like, you can't live like this. You can't right, right. spend every waking moment, like stepping through OCD. And so this golf course that I used to play on, I would get out there for round, I go golfing by myself and I would pick a score, you know, I would go, okay. And I knew what I was, I knew what sort of golfer I was. And I'd say, and so I'd put it a couple strokes above that. So like sure. back nine, I'd say I would make a deal with my, basically my OCD where I'd say, okay, here's the deal. Cause all, all these thoughts are running through my brain. You know, your sister died. This person could die. You could die. You could have a panic attack right now. This horrible thing could happen. You're trying to cope with all these. You go, all right, if I shoot better than a 47 today, none of those things can happen to me all day long. And if I shoot worse than a 47, uh, all the shit you're scared of is going to happen. So it's almost like this, this volcanic eruption of OCD, like all this culminating, everything comes together into one champion OCD yeah, moment. Yeah. So I like looking back on it now, I think it's fucking insane and funny, but I just a 20, two-year-old kid on and i used to golf in sandals what? so i'm yeah i golfed in I've, I've golfed in sandals a lot uh for some reason um so i would i would some dumbass 22 year old kid with horrible ocd just pumping around a golf course on sandals making the most high pressurized deal <laughs> like oh my god like I have to, and I'm really competitive, so I would get really focused, but I would be like, if you don't shoot this number, you, all these horrible things are going to happen and you're kind of convinced of it. And so, yeah, for like a little while there, I was making golfing OCD deals with myself until a therapist was like, dude, you got to fucking stop that. That's bad. That's like, re he was like, yeah, that seems really bad. He was like, you can't put that pressure on yourself. But at that point, I was on like a two-week winning streak. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I fucking shot 44, and I just chilled the rest of the day. Like, so I, I, I don't know. It was like when you don't understand how your brain works and what the mental illness issue you're dealing with can do to you, like sometimes I think about the really interesting and weird places I went to, to try to cope with the anxiety and the OCD and then the ramifications of the OCD and the exhaustion. And I mean, I suppose anybody who's listens like, Hey, that's not funny. That sounds fucking horrible. <laughs> but, yeah. That sounds horrible. You, you are beating yourself the idea, up, man. The idea of some fucking 22 year old kid in sandals playing around a golf to save his uncle Craig's life is very funny to me. <laughs> I would have cheated my ass off. Yeah, I, oh, like, I, um, you, I mean, it's not how it works. You can't cheat because you, you, you're just there with yourself. You got to be honest. But yeah, it was uh, a lot of years 
with a lot of pretty intense compulsions um, that, you know, once, so I'm a big proponent of, I, I like, you know, we both work for the Vikings. I thought that was, I know Everson Griffin is going through it again right now, but I remember when he first started dealing with mental health issues, you know, or at least they first were publicly prevalent. Sure. You know, the way the organization reacted and handled it. And I thought was so great. And the way a lot of organizations, like the way mental health has come into the forefront of conversations with some of the toughest people in the world. I think that's just so, so incredible for, you know, the people that have spent years kind of quietly suffering, you know, or right. quietly, quietly questioning themselves for suffering, you know? So yeah, I, uh, it's, I went to some pretty weird places. Did that give you <laughs> enough humor, Ben? Uh, it, it certainly did. And I do think it's, I do think it's pretty remarkable how you've taken yourself from, from that crazy self-talk that you had on the golf course, which, which, you know, probably made you a hell of a golfer at that point in time in your life. Still, um, still, still really average. You would think I'd have honed in still very average. See, again, I know that I wasn't in your brain, but I would have said, all right, uh, all right, listen, self, on this back nine, instead of shooting, if I shoot a 47, all is right in the world, I would have put that number like, all right, if I get below a 60, I'm going to have a great yeah. day. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I knew that I knew that wouldn't cut it. Maybe the deal would get accepted by the other voice talking to me in my brain. Yeah, you're basically literally making a sports bet with yourself. You've got to make it interesting. And you made it interesting. Yeah, it's it's a really it's OCD. Like I said, it's such an individual an individual disease, but it is it is a, it can be a really weird, really consuming one. We are supported by my buddy Pat Kelly and his insurance business, Wexford Harbor Insurance. They've been my insurance provider for years, and I can't recommend them enough. I used to be with one of those uh, big box companies, and I just thought all insurance was relatively the same, but it's not. Every family has different needs, whether it's the number of kids or cars, boats, personal items, homes, umbrella protection, whatever it is, Wexford Harbor can tailor the coverage to you. They will find the best fit and value to save you money, but give you the best protection available. They can do that because they're an independent family-owned company that has access to over 40 different carriers. You're not locked into one company's group of coverage silos. Pat and his partner, Scott Michael Bust, will optimize and craft a personalized insurance package for you and your family. With over 50 years of experience between the two of them, they will give you the attention, service, and value you deserve. And their reach is far and wide, people. They service Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, Colorado, and for you snowbirds, Arizona and Florida. Check them out at wexford-harbor.com slash unrestricted. That's wexford-harbor, H-A-R-B-O-U-R.com slash unrestricted. And you can email them at info at wexford-harbor.com. So I know that we've alluded to the fact that we both work for the Vikings. You are a Vikings fan. You talk about it week in and week out on your podcast. If there's one team to give you mental anxiety, it's this freaking team this year. So in a, in a quick way, I do want to get your take because this is going to be time stamped. You know, this is going to come out on uh, on the Monday after the the Bears game, so there could be a lot of decisions that have been made already. But I want to get your quick your quick take on what you think the Vikings will do come that Monday 
if anything? Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think the fan, the, the conversations that we as Vikings fans have often frustrate me uh, because I don't believe we have any nuance and that's not unique. You know, our society is drowning nuance in a tub right now. Everything's black and white. There's no gray. There's no, you see it in every aspect of society. It's, you know, there's no real effort to, I'm a big believer in that multiple things can be true, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I think a lot of the conversations that keep swirling around about our favorite team, you know, and, and the people that get talked about the most, Kirk Cousins, Mike Zimmer, uh, Rick Spielman, I think there can be multiple truths and a lot of nuance. And I, I think you and I see it. I'm such, my biggest belief in sports is if you do not have a strong ownership group that's genuinely committed to winning, you have no shot. Throughout the history of all professional sports, whether it's the crafts, you know, whether it's the, uh, the Roonies, whether you go back to Eddie DeBartolo with the Niners, you know, giving players their own rooms and meal. Like when you have an ownership group that actually cares about whether or not they win the Super Bowl and cares about how their facilities and their players are treated, I think you have a, a like a continuity and uh, of owner, like just, just of process. And so, so as a Viking fan, because I remember Red McCombs, man, I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I was at the game that Randy Moss mooned the crowd in Lambeau. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we were in the sixth row of the end zone that Moss mooned. And before the game, Red McCombs was sauntering around and he came over. He's like, purple pride, purple pride. And he like came over to the edge of the stadium. He was shaking people's hands. And my nephew, Seth, one of my other adult nephews, uh, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong, yeah. ding, came, uh, he was like, let's go shake his hand. And so we went down and we shook his hand and he shook his hand. And I couldn't not be a rube. I shook his hand. And I was like, please sell the team, please sell, no. sell the team. Yeah. I got to say that to red McCombs and I, you actually said fan, that. Yeah. I was just a dumbass. I was like a 21 year old, 20 something year old dumbass kid. Yeah. I was like, Red McCombs is going to shake my hand. Well, I'm going to say the shit I want to say. If I'm not going to say the shit that I say to my dad every week, what's the point of this? I didn't call yeah. him an asshole. I was just like, Hey, could you sell it? You don't want, you don't, you don't like this. Come on. Like I wasn't a dick, but yeah, uh, but you couldn't have been happier with who bought the team. So I, I just have a, a faith in the ownership group that they're actually trying to put together winners. So when, once you get beyond that point, you get to the multiple truths thing. And I, I think there's truth in, you know, what a lot of fans are feeling about, you know, their frustrations with Mike Zimmer and the way things have gone or with uh, Rick Spielman and the way things go. But then I think there's also truth to Mike Zimmer did a hell of a job. He came in here and turned a defense around and it's been a weird two years with injuries and opt-outs and, and Rick Spielman has made some incredible draft picks and some fantastic, like, so it's, there's multiple truths there. And then you get to our quarterback and it's the same thing where it's like, there's just these, these two polarized sides. Like either he's the worst quarterback to ever play or he should change his name to Joe Montana. And rather than, 
I think where I've landed as a fan is rather getting involved in that discourse. I generally think greatness susses itself out. Like we, yeah. we have two are we have two arguments in sports. Like, well, we have a lot of arguments in sports, but when it comes to greatness, the first argument is someone great or are they not great? And then we have a second argument. It's how great are they? Where do they rank among the greats? So Aaron Rodgers, you know, uh, Peyton Manning, you have Tom Brady, you have like even Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson, who's had a down year or two, who's injured this year, but there's not a lot of people arguing about whether or not Russell Wilson is great, or at this point, whether or not Andy Reid is great, you know, and they're arguing about where they land. And I, I just think that's what happens. Like performance dictates your conversation. So for guys like, I just love our team. And I like when they play relevant football late in the year. And I really, I'm, I'm a fucking rube. I want to see playoff games. I want to see relevant December and January football and all those other conversations, they're going to get answered in a few years from now. If, if, if it's eight years from now and there's two sides still arguing about whether or not Kirk is a great quarterback, well, that kind of gives you the answer. You know, I, I just, I don't think there's very many examples in sports where you have somebody who's unquestionably in an elite category that people are still arguing with, you know? Sure, so sure. for, for, I, I always said going into these last two years, I thought we would get our answers about all the things that people were worried about. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Kirk and I'm a fan and I've met these people who wanted Zimmer fired during the season. I mean, I get your understand. I, I, I understand frustrations with the coach. He's just too respectful. I mean, we, we come from right. the love boat and scalping tickets. This is a guy who came in, turned your defense around. You've had off the field issues, but you're not that centerpiece of the league for off field issues like you were for a decade and a half. You know, he's he's handled his business well. The organization has ha- so, you know, performance will dictate all that other stuff. And you know, I'm just going to be the guy that's here. I'll always have opinions of who I, that's what makes sports great. But I think performance and, uh, and results will probably take care of that more nuanced conversation as opposed to me hopping on Twitter and telling somebody why somebody else is great and or sucks. Right. right. Well, I think that the one thing that, that, uh, that you sort of alluded to and touched on, and we're on the same I think we're in the same boat with this opinion is is that with all the talk from the fans, nothing is going to surprise me. You know, if it is, if it is a clean house, I I don't know. We've all, we've all debated that for how many weeks now, if it's one, if it's the coach or the GM, one or the other, if the quarterback gets moved, if certain players are traded in the off season, I think that we've talked about it. So ad nauseum and look and looked at it from a circular point of view that none of it will surprise me. And, and a lot of the decisions, like I could support that. Like if I'm look if I'm Ziggy and Mark Wilf, I'm like, I get it. Like I get why you made this decision. And, yeah. and, uh, and like you said, performance does speak. And, you know, there are instances and there are examples of 
poor performance from both the GM and the head coach and also good performances from the head coach to GM. So now it's like, okay, you add all that, all that stuff up, what's your pluses and minuses and where do you want this team going forward? So um, it is going to be, I mean, for you and I in the sports business, it's going to be an awesome and really fun, relevant off season. Yeah, I, I think, and I just think it's, you know, people forget they live so in the most recent immediate moment, like the situation we're in is it's, it's a, is a pretty unique one with, you know, the last couple of years of the pandemic and coming off a, an almost Super Bowl run and signing a big, co- it's just a weird conglomerate that it was going to take a while to suss itself out. But yeah. I just, I'm just going to keep being a fan. Yeah. Well, I love you for being a fan. Uh, thanks for your time today, man. This is, this is tremendous stuff. Thanks for, thanks for kind of opening the vein a little bit too and, uh, and letting sure. people know who you are. Uh, sure. So yeah. Thanks for having me. So, so everybody out there, check out the Cy Amundsen show, Middle of Somewhere with Chad Daniels. Uh, you're on Instagram. Check out and Middle Twitter. of Somewhere. Do, do Middle of Somewhere. <laughs> do Middle of Somewhere. Do Middle of Somewhere. And then Twitter and Instagram at Cy Amundsen. So Cy, thanks so much, man. Thanks, buddy. See ya. Well, that is going to do it for Unrestricted this week. I do want to thank Cy. Just like he mentioned, we have tried to set up this damn sit down for many, many weeks, if not months. And he finally found some time. I found some time. And unfortunately, you know, I wasn't feeling my best and I didn't sound my best, but we got her done. I want to thank my audio guy, Dave Yeager, for helping out as always. He's he's going to be a master and really earning his keep this week, making everything sound as professional as it always does. So I want to thank, uh, I want to thank Dave as well for putting this thing together and making me sound not so ridiculous. I also want to thank uh, you guys as the listeners. You guys have been amazing, always supporting this podcast. Please continue to do that on Apple, Spotify, the iHeart and Google apps. I also want to thank Wexford Harbor insurance for all your insurance needs. Please go to Wexford harbor.com slash unrestricted for family and business independent insurance that's customized to you and your family and your business. I also want to thank Wells Care and their IASO device. Please go to wellscare.net to get your IASO device, which is the world's only hands-free at-home cold laser therapy device. Uh, believe me, it's been it's a, it's 100 years of trusted evidence of cold laser. Normally, you have to get it done at a clinic or at some sort of hospital system, but um, you can actually do it at home now. And as a, as a matter of fact, my daughter just used one tonight because uh, she's got a bum wrist and it's really bothering her and I think it's going to help and I know it's going to help. So please go to wellscare.net or to bestbuy.com to get your device today. So thank you all very much everyone and we'll be back next week. Have a good one. Bye.